Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. We are Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. That scene in Wolf of Wall Street when Leonardo DiCaprio is giving that speech and he's like, I'm not fucking leaving. That was me. People who like think that being like an influencer or a content creator is just like dream job. Dude, it is depressing. It is like alienating. I've always wondered why is Canadian bacon not just called ham? Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Evan. I'm Tim. And we have a very special and very exciting episode this week with Dylan Thuras. Dylan's the founder of a little travel site you've probably heard of called Atlas Obscura. He's also the host of their new podcast, and he's here to talk about the state of the travel industry, how to separate all the bullshit tourist traps from places actually worth seeing. He's as much as a tr- of a travel expert as we've ever had on the show. So it was a good week to tune in. Good on you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I think Dylan really shares a lot of valuable insight that's going to be actionable for nearly everybody listening to this podcast, no matter what level of travel uh, uh, passion you are at. One of my favorite things about chatting with Dylan is that he kind of has this full circle view of the world of travel and how it pertains to the media. And he really breaks down how it all works and how it's going to be, you know, going forward and where the value is at. And that, that made this one of my favorite conversations we've had in a while. Yeah, and he tells us how to break into the travel media industry for those who are interested in doing that. And coming from a guy like him, who's the founder of a successful travel site, that's very, very valuable advice. So we're going to get into that soon. But first, we are going to launch right into hot takes. Tim, uh, you want to ask me first or should I ask you first? What are you feeling today? I'll go first, man. I got a couple of door slammers for you here. So first off, and this one kind of builds on one of the questions from last week. Is watching television in hotel rooms weird? And the reason why I ask this is because I never turn on the TV in hotel rooms. Almost never, unless I specifically want to watch like a playoff baseball game or something that I know is on. But I never just sit there and flip channels. It's weird to me and it gives me anxiety. What are your thoughts? Well, why does it give you anxiety? Because I don't like watching TV much anyway. And when I'm not in my own comfort zone, uh, it's even worse for me. Like I just can't get into watching fake reality when I'm traveling and should be out having a reality of myself. Okay. So you feel like you're wasting time. You feel like you're in a new place. You can, you know, you want to experience the place, not just sit around your hotel room and watch TV. It makes you feel bad about yourself. Correct. But it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy hanging out in hotel rooms. I actually do. As we've discussed at length, I just, that's not one of the activities I like to do in hotel rooms. I would much rather read. It's because the TV, the TV drives home the idea of you, that you're being lazy. Like reading is like, oh, come on, I'm engaging in like a cultural intellectual activity. But if you're watching TV, if you're like sitting there watching Jersey Shore reruns, then you can't hide from the fact that you're just being an absolute bum, right? I think that's probably the driver of it. Yeah. From my perspective, the first thing I do when I get into a hotel room, I flop down on the, on the bed. I turn on the air conditioning, regardless of what season it is, <laughs> and I put on the TV. First thing I do immediately. But what are you watching though? What are you watching? If I'm in a for, like a really foreign country, any that gets American channels, anything that's like familiar to me that'll like kind of ground me and make me feel like okay, like I'm comfortable. I'm 
The outside is where I want to experience the new culture and the new experiences. Inside the hotel room, I want to be comfortable. Anything I recognize, anything that makes me feel like, okay, everything's going to be okay for the next half hour. I think the thing is, is that we're actually very similar in our reasoning for whether we do or don't, because I don't turn on the TV because I never watch TV at home. So if the TV's on, I feel less comfortable. Like I feel like I'm less in my zone. To me, TV just stresses me out in general. I don't, I don't enjoy it. So turning it on in a hotel room makes stresses me out even more. I can see you checking in, just flopping down on the bed, reflexively turning on the TV without really thinking much about it. And then King of Queens pops up or Seinfeld, and you just have an absolute meltdown and freak out, jump out the window. Right. That's probably what would happen. Hey, do you want, if you want to work on this, Tim, if you want to work on this, we can talk through it. Like, I'm here for you if you want to really let it out, like really try to explore your emotions on this. I'm here. Let's do it. Well, we'll, we'll we will spare the listeners that. <laughs> okay. My next question, and this is this is, pertains to something that I'm going to be doing directly here in September. The Boston historical walking and pub tours. Are they bullshit or are they awesome? Never done one. Well, as a native of the area, what are your thoughts on the people that do them? Since I've never done it, I'm not really qualified to say. Um, I've always thought they were kind of lame, I guess. But I will say that I really, really, really hope you get one of those Revolutionary War reenactor soldiers leading it who's like super enthusiastic and makes everybody feel really uncomfortable. I'm, I'm very interested to see how it goes. Okay. Well, I, I'm excited. Yeah, we're, we're doing it. Because my question for you, Tim, is what do you think about guided theme tours versus going it alone? You know, I've got to say, like, I actually like having a guide sometimes. I, this is something that I think I've realized the more I've traveled around uh, doing, you know, backcountry snowboarding and, and outdoors adventures in general, that having a guide that really knows the area, it doesn't weaken the experience. It strengthens it and makes you safer because, A, they know what they're talking about. They know the area. But B... They can also take you to the best stuff that you probably wouldn't have found otherwise. Well, and there's so many different kinds of tours, guided tours, that it's tough to make a generalization. I mean, some are like like you're doing in Boston, like an hour or two. And then there's some that you pay for like this package thing and it's four or five days and nights and the, the hotels are included and all this stuff. So what I what I guess what I'm kind of talking about is more the theme tours that are like take a Game of Thrones theme tour of Ireland. And you, they basically take you to all these different landscapes where they film stuff. You get a few like behind the scenes experiences that you couldn't get by yourself, but you're on like kind of a bus with people. They charge you like $4,000 for like five nights. Doesn't even include airfare. You get to go to the cliffs where they film this. You get to go to, uh, oh, this castle is where they film King's Landing, whatever. And people eat that stuff up. I mean, we write about it all the time. And it's just every time I write an article about these theme tours, I, I just think those things are absolute highway robbery. Doing a historical tour of Boston, paying like 50 bucks, get a qualified guide, show you the history that you wouldn't otherwise know yourself. That stuff, I understand the the historical benefit of having a an educated guide. But some of the other stuff, it's like, if I look up and I'm like, oh, King's Landing was filmed at this at this castle in Ireland, like I could just go there myself for free and look at it and not have to pay thousands of dollars to do it in a giant group. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. Um, I think that it has to be, I mean, and of course it's targeted towards a very specific audience that is obsessed with that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to think there's probably nothing that I would be so obsessed with that I would 
pay for that. You know, I just don't know what it would be. That kind of thing strikes me as like, let's prey on people that are like super fanboys, get them to pay a ton of money and kind of exploit their fandom to upcharge them for this experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of ties into one of the topics in, in today's interview uh, with Dylan, where he, he talks a lot about like kind of these artificially created tourist spots that are created just for an Instagram photo. And those tours are kind of the same thing. Like they're just creating this tour so that the people that are super into this one specific thing can come and take some photos and put them on social media of them, uh, you know, at the same place where Harry Potter was filmed or at the same place where Queen's Gate was filmed or whatever it is, you know? Okay. Uh, next question is, we talked a little bit today at work about post-hike depression as a concept. Have you experienced this? What is this and have you ever experienced it? I have not. No, I've never done like a long-term trek. You know, you like the context of this was... Well, well, what is it? Explain. So, the, yeah, the context is that so if you are on, you know, a three month journey hiking the Pacific Crest Trail from, you know, Mexico to Canada, and then you finish the trail and you go back to normal life and you go back to a job that maybe you don't love so much, you become down on life because you're no longer in this epitome of what you wanted to do, which was this trek and something that you prepared for for a long time and you got in shape for and you researched and you put all this effort into some great project and then that project is done and now you no longer have the purpose of accomplishing this task, so you become depressed. Yeah, if you were to talk to one of my friends, he would tell you that I always get post-trip depression, that at like the last day of a long trip, I get really emotional and just kind of like I get all these mixed emotions. Like I'm sad that the trip is over and I'm not ready to go home. We were out drinking on the last day and I was like, I will not go home. Like I am not, I won't. I'm like that scene in Wolf of Wall Street when Leonardo DiCaprio is giving that speech. Then he's like, I'm not fucking leaving. That was me. Like I just don't, it was like four in the morning, bars closed, maybe in like a half an hour. And he's like, dude, it's time to go. I'm like, no, I don't want to go. Nope. Because if I go, that means we have to go to sleep. And if I go to sleep, that means the trip is over. And tomorrow morning, we have to go get an airplane to go home. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go home. So that's, so that's I, I think that does affect me, but not for hikes. In hikes, I get mid-hike depression because I'm on, I realize that I'm on the hike and it's not over yet. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of like that the opening scene of Forgetting Sarah Marshall where uh, Jason Siegel is naked and then Kristen Bell comes home and breaks up with them and she's like why don't you put your clothes on and we'll talk about this and he's like no I'm not putting my clothes on because if I put my clothes on it's over <laughs> exactly that's exactly how I feel alright well we're going to put our clothes back on here because Dylan's coming in and we're going to see you on the other side Okay, welcome to the show, Dylan. You're a uh, busy guy these days with the website and the new podcast, so thanks for making the time. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having me. It's good to talk to you guys. Yeah, so I mean, even though Tim and I work for Matador, we're big big fans of Atlas Obscura and what you guys do. Um, it's always good to support other travel publications that are doing cool stuff. And I mean, first off, I wanted to ask, just for anyone who might not be directly familiar with Atlas Obscura, what in your view kind of makes it unique or stand out from other travel sites? Because there are so many out there now, and it's increasingly tough to offer something useful that people can't get anywhere else. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Atlas came to exist because I was moving to Eastern Europe for a year. 
my co-founder Josh and I started talking about what kinds of travel resources we wished existed. And I think travel media for a long time and still has this problem, it, it tends to sort of just, um, there's such a like follow on effect. Like someone will write about, you know, 10, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, someone started writing about Iceland and like how amazing it was. And like, that's still the like arc that everything's on. Everyone sort of starts to follow the same threads. And so you, you find the same kinds of places showing up again and again across travel media. And, and the thing that Josh and I wanted to do was just create uh, a space for the kinds of stuff that we wanted to see that wasn't showing up in any of that stuff at all. So, um, so, you know, whether that's medical museums or folk art projects or abandoned places, roadside attractions, like all this kind of stuff that spans sort of almost different pockets of, of interest, right? Like I mean, there were little pockets over here for one thing and little pockets over here for another thing, but no one had kind of put that stuff together and said like, this stuff is, is worth seeing. It's really interesting. It's really valuable. And it's not necessarily about you know, getting on a plane, like some of this stuff is, is 20 miles from your house. It's more about storytelling. Yeah. And there's only so many times that a publication can write about, these are, these are the top 10 uh, waterfalls you want to see in Iceland. Yeah. It's like that exact article I think has probably been written at least like 600 times by like the top 10 travel publications. It's like how many sure. people, people get it, you know, if you're interested, you know, by now. What's crazy to me about sort of the way travel media has has generally tended to work is because of this like follow on effect of everyone kind of writing about the same stuff. What happens is by the time a lot of people have actually picked it up and say they go to do that tour, say someone says, actually, OK, I'm going to go to all those Iceland waterfalls. They get there and it's like absolutely jam packed with other people doing the exact same thing. And the experience like isn't very good at that point. And the funny thing is like the world is really big. Like the world's actually like super big and there's so many places you could go to experience, you know, if you're looking for incredible nature, there's no shortage of it. And so the idea that like everyone sort of gets stuck in these narrow ruts is just a kind of like, it's been something that's been happening in travel writing for a long time. And I, and I hope that Atlas helps make some other just little kind of tributaries off of that, like main river of, of people. The whole hidden gems thing is always been interesting to me because the idea is always to write about places that people don't know about yet and that oh you have to go here because there's no avoid the crowds it's a unique you get the local experience but then if you promote that as a major travel publication and everyone you know and it does its job and everyone starts to go there you've just ruined that hidden gem so it's this weird kind of catch-22 this was something we worried about a lot at the start of atlas of of whether we would ruin these places it's interesting. As of now, this could change. We could reach a scale where this this wasn't true anymore. But as of now, you know, what we find is a lot of the kinds of places we promote because they're kind of weirder and they're like in places that people aren't necessarily traveling to as much. Uh, they tend to die of underlove more than overlove. And so, you know, what the other interesting thing in travel is when a place dies from overlove, it's very visible, right? It's like, everyone's like, oh, a place got completely crushed, like totally destroyed and everyone, you know, and it's a real bummer. But then when places quietly disappear because no one knows about them or cares about them, that sort of just 
happens in silence. And I think they are both a bummer. And are they're both, you know, like finding a way to celebrate the places uh, that need that attention and get more people to them and not promote places that frankly just don't need the promotion is kind of the name of the game for us. I'm curious how you go about deciding and curating these places uh, that you guys feature and that you're going to promote and what to you makes something a tourist trap? It's a good question. Also, I have to admit a certain love of certain kinds of tourist traps. Like, I think we've all got that a little bit. Yeah, like I, there's a place called the House on the Rock in Wisconsin that is like a quintessential kind of roadside tourist trap. Um, it's, you know, this insane place filled with like a giant sculpture of a squid fighting a whale and the world's largest indoor carousel. And there's nothing like it in the world, really. Um, and it's definitely a tourist trap, but I absolutely love it because it's just, it's insane. It's amazing. Same with like wall drug in South Dakota. That's like the original tourist trap, but it's great. It's true onto itself. Um, you know, the tourist, the things that, that bother me are the places when it's sort of like sold as packaged authenticity but in fact, like those places know they're tourist traps. What's a bummer is when something's sort of packaged as like, oh, here's the real vibe of this place. Like come to, you know, Venice and like take this gondola ride. And it's just, it's just a scrum of people having a terrible time and like infuriating the locals because there's literally more tourists coming to Venice in a day than there are people living in the city. Like that is a universally bad experience. We tend to act as if the places we travel, we're judging them on their like real inherent basis, right? But like a million people a year go to see Plymouth Rock. And Plymouth Rock was like discovered, like remembered by this guy, like 150 years after the, the supposed, you know, uh, pilgrims like landed there. He was like the oldest guy in town. He's like, oh, I think it was that rock. And they like carved like a date in it. And then it's like a little you know, stand around it and people go look at it. It's a, it's literally a rock that probably has nothing to do really with, with much at all. And the, but the mythology around it is so strong that that's what people are looking at when they see it. And so I think it's like places are about the stories that surround them as much as they are about the place itself. It's like a lot about the romance that we create in our heads. Plymouth Rock, I think it was my first field trip that I ever went to. And the whole thing was like, it was like, wow, like this is where America started. And then you grow up and you realize like a lot of this is just a kind of a manufactured mythology around this place. That myth is so robust and so ubiquitous that it's still special. So it's interesting. Like I'm curious, I don't know if Tim, any come to mind for you, but just these places around the world that have these mythologies that are kind of manufactured that don't I aren't actually consistent with real with real history. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example of another another place that's like that where the myth of it is like I mean, obviously anything in the kind of like paranormal folklore category is essentially often a version of that, right? It's just like people are excited to experience it because there is something narrative that they can engage with. So it's like, ooh, the, and you know, whatever, like this is where this thing happened or where this ghost lives. And actually, you know, what's a great example of this is the Winchester mystery house, which like I super dig as a place. It's pretty fun. It's cool. It's weird. It's interesting. The architecture is interesting. Almost the entire backstory is fabricated in a sense. Like we know this very wealthy widow lived there, did some weird architecture period. That's like what we know. 
everything about their like there was a seance room and she was like felt guilty about the victims of the Winchester rifle fortune. None of it. All of it fabricated. And I it's okay. Yeah, and people feel like to feel like they're part of a story. And I think that helps bring people in because they feel like they're partaking in this history themselves rather than like yeah, it's, it's a, kind of a cool house. Like, it may or may not have been, uh, you know, part of this interesting lore. But like, yeah, it's fun to fun to imagine. No, if you sell that to people, they're all in. They really want to be part of it. Totally. And there's also cases of that where a destination will plant something there in the hopes that it becomes a legend. And I think the, one of the most blatant examples I can think of is, I don't know if you've ever flown into the Denver airport, Dylan, but the giant blue devil horse oh, yeah. that's sitting on the highway coming out of it, it's called Blucifer. And the legend among Denverites is that it's there to scare off the opponents of the Denver Broncos that are coming to play. <laughs> but what what is not often known about that place but what a lot of the locals do know is that that horse which looks straight up like it came from the gates of hell fell on its own on the person that made it and killed him yeah so there actually is this thing and then the city of denver still planted it at the airport in hopes that it would generate all this conversation and it it's it's become like the corniest local legend in colorado probably Funnily, because the Denver airport has like all like way more weird conspiracy mythology around it than like any other like it is a pretty normal, not that exciting airport. I've been to this a fine airport, but like the kind of like weird stuff floating around the Denver airport is is very strange. And I wonder, like, I don't know when it started and how it all kind of emerged. But yeah, Lucifer is definitely like a part of that, a part of that whole thing. And the rest is like it's underneath the airport is a bunker for the Masons and for like the president if the country gets attacked. And it's all crap as far as I can tell. Right. I didn't know. Any Dude, of people, people look up Denver airport conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, only if you want like to enter into a completely wacky world. But, you know, I mean, hey, Denver is the cultural, architectural, historical epicenter of America. We, we can help them propagate that story for sure yeah i mean even when you're thinking about going to a place or like planning a trip somewhere you haven't been you're sort of in the act of of, of like building a a romance story and a narrative for yourself right you're like oh man it's gonna be so cool there's like this thing like you know check out this like amazing you know picture of this place and you're like you travel is a lot about sort of creating that that like feeling of romance and that mythology and like why a place is going to be special, like for yourself. And so that act of storytelling, I think is like a big part of, of travel in a way that's not always kind of like as explicitly acknowledged as, as I feel like it could be. Well, how do you think that factors into the idea of people who are increasingly traveling for Instagram, just to say that they went to a place to post pictures about it, to get likes versus the kind of more traditional concept of traveling and because i think what you just said plays back plays into the latter category but to create to be part of that story and to build this kind of romantic story for yourself but i think increasingly as you see more influencers pop up and like actual pop-ups like pop-up uh destinations like like in new york city they have all these pop-up restaurants and bars that are specifically designed for like instagram pictures with these backgrounds and these 
like photo ops and it's just, that's just becoming so ubiquitous now like the ice cream museum and like that kind of these sort of like right and there's a ton in california these bright colorful backgrounds yeah. and yeah i have such mixed complicated feelings about all of this i on the one hand i think it's like fairly cynical like it's influencers are the easiest people to dunk on in the world right so it's like easy to totally like you know just look at it with sort of nothing but scorn. I think the thing about it that bums me out is is for that person, like everything, like every act of being becomes commerce. Do you know what I mean? When like, when everything you do is kind of like meant to be packaged and then sold, even if it's just being sold for likes, but there's always a part of like, it's always sort of part of something of self-branding, like all of this stuff. It just, it turns your experience as a person into something pretty transactional. And like, that feels sad to me. Like that feels like a bummer because I think it takes it takes stuff away from you and it make because it's transactional, it it makes your experience with that place potentially very transactional too, right? Like you go there, you're just there to do the thing because you're there to get the photo because you like got to make content, you know, like being a con, you know, the people who like think that being like a influencer or a content creator is just like dream job. Like, dude, that job is a grind. Like that job, people are like, it is depressing. It is like alienating. You have to like package your personality. You have to package all that. So like, you know, I don't, so that part of it is sad to me. And I think like, probably it's not very good for the soul. I feel like, you know, influencers are not ruining travel. Like there are way bigger problems than, than like all those people like tramping the super bloom flowers like it's very corny and again it's so easy to dunk on because you're like guys this is so embarrassing and like terrible but like cruise ships letting you know eight cruise ships docking in barcelona every day and letting off three thousand people at a time that's like a bigger it's like a bigger issue do you know what i mean like in, influencers are just it's a bummer. The whole the, the it's such a bummer. It's and it's sort of so embarrassing in a way that it's like an easy place to focus the kind of frustration of of like how travel is changing. The same thing that you said about influencers could the same thing be said about travel photographers and writers. I mean, maybe sure. Although I think if you are a a, a someone who's going. And doing like a, a bigger photo shoot or or a story, hopefully you're engaging at, at least a slightly deeper level. I'm sure there are influencers out there who are really like gaining a lot and, and going deep and having these meaningful, you know, experiences and, and all of that. And like that's that's all good. I think it I think it, a lot of it has to do more with the sort of the macro forces, the kind of commodification of everything, that, that everything is kind of commerce and, and that there's not a lot of space for sort of a, a quieter, more contemplative experience, which just like totally makes me sound like I'm 85 years old. But like that is, feels true. And it feels, it feels like, um, feels hectic. It just feels like people are like, ah, I'm just trying to survive and I got to get those likes and I'm working eight freelance gigs and like, I, you know, and it's just like, that's, that's just hard. That's not really these people's fault. That's like macroeconomic, like policy stuff that got us there. So I don't know. Dunking on influencers is like not where the problems are really starting, if you know what I mean. No, we've had a few influencers on the show and I think it's really helped to 
change our perception and to give us kind of some new insight on exactly what the business aspect of it is like for them and that hard, how man. they how they actually process and enjoy a trip that's it that it isn't just them kind of like taking a picture getting likes and going back to the hotel room but i mean we also talk about ourselves like as writers and traveling how we feel like huge frauds a lot of times and how we feel like we're kind of like not providing anything useful necessarily and just kind of like regurgitating stuff we see so we're just trying to keep everyone honest here i guess it is hard to do real original reporting. A lot of what any writer does is repackaging, coming up with a new angle, uh, synthesizing multiple sources of information, you know, but it's hard and rarer and, and, and it means you need the time, you need the money, you need the space to go out there and do like legit original reporting. Like this hasn't been covered. I'm going to interview tons of people who people haven't talked to. I'm going to figure out all the facts. It's just like, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a high bar. And, and, you know, one of the sort of these macroeconomic things is like, there's not a lot of places that can afford to pay writers to do that work. Well, it's a constant push pull between like clicks, which isn't usually the super in-depth reporting that takes you months to do and, you know, real original storytelling. And probably every one of those 610 most beautiful waterfalls in Iceland stories like did great. You know what I mean? Like they probably all did solid traffic. That's kind of sad compared to the story that's like really well reported and takes like three months. That's about the indigenous people of Iceland. You know, and no one's going to click on that. Whereas people click on the waterfalls and I, I get why, but yeah, you know, it's kind of the sad state of things. So with, with that in mind, how are you going about curating your content for the Atlas Obscura podcast right now? Because what from what you said and from my experience of of reading Atlas Obscura and and browsing your site, you do kind of tend to focus on specific small locations. Uh, so how is that curated, and how do you keep it going on an ongoing basis? For the podcast, it's a, a question of kind of what is going to make a good audio story, or is there a source we're really excited to talk to? Um, we've got a story coming out. By the time this airs, it'll be live, coming out on Monday about a place called the Institute of Illegal Images, which I'd always wanted to track the person down. And it was like a little bit hard, but one of our reporters, Matt Taub, got in touch with him. And it's out in San Francisco. It's like a home museum. So it's in this dude's house. And it's the world's biggest collection of blotter art. So it's like LSD tabs. like, And basically he collected, you know, they used to put these big pictures, like these kind of beautiful images on, on, uh, blotter paper. And usually they'd get divvied up and they disappeared into people's, into people's mouths. But he managed to collect this enormous, uh, set of them. And it was really cool to talk, like hear this guy, he's like very eccentric and, and, and interesting. And, uh, and so that's, you know, we're sort of just on the lookout for stuff like that, like to tell a story that maybe sounds like one line, but when you go a little deeper, like opens up into this bigger thing. They're really quick, right? They're like 15 minutes each. 15 minutes or less. One little transformative uh, journey. You know, you get to turn this thing on. It fits. The idea is at least that it kind of fits into these spaces in your life while you're chopping vegetables or, you know, driving to, to, to work or whatever. Like these sort of short little windows. I, as a person with two kids, like I don't have... I have a couple of podcasts that I love and I try and make the time for, but like a certain point, I just can't, I, I don't have the time. And so we were trying to do something that was 
little bit sort of small and 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 each one was like its own little gem. Cool. So to pivot just a little bit to your own style of travel and trip planning, do you actually follow itineraries you find in travel magazines and blogs or do you think they're pretty much just clickbait? It's tough to find a really good one. It's tough to find one that you're like, oh, so I do what I think everyone else does. I look at like 50 million things on the internet. I like assemble them together. I have too many tabs open. Uh, then I get to the place. I do two of them. I get tired. The kids start crying. We get a drink and then we go like sit at the hotel. Kind of along those lines, if you feel like that there's anything still lacking in, in travel media or if there's anything specifically wrong with the industry and where it's going, because this is something we talk about on the show a lot is like, are, what value are we missing and what value are we not adding that we should be? You know, it's it's interesting. Before the pandemic, uh, the thing I was on about all the time was over tourism, right? This thing that I was sort of talking about before, which is just places getting absolutely crushed. Well, like 40 miles away in some awesome other place, there's like no one. And just how frustrating that was and how do you how do you do dispersal better? I think that's still going to apply, you know, as travel comes back. It's still a good question of how do you how do you do dispersal more effectively and, and just like make paths to new locations. Anyway, man, I'm curious now, like because I'm six months or less away from being a dad. How long did Congratulations. it take before you were back out on the road? Yeah, thank you. Tim, you're never going to be back out on the road. It's over. <laughs> I, again, see, that's not what I wanted to hear, though. That's not I want I'm like, oh, no, you can get them back on the road when they're like a year and a half. You're going to be back. I'm trying to convince Tim. To, I think you're I think Alicia should try to go for like one of those like a cool midair birth, like in an airplane, <laughs> just to really like get the kid in like a travel mindset. So he kind of knows what to expect in the first few years of his life, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good plan. Really comfortable for everybody involved. Yeah, you got. I'm sure that'll go. I'm sure that that suggestion will go over great. Given her nerves that we have already, I'm sure that's going to be right at the top of the priority list. I I don't. My kids are three and six, and so we're entering. We took them both to South Korea for two weeks, which was great. It was really hard. It was like exhausting. It was. There was this like one point where we like I had like one of these moments where like we got to this it's this amazing volcano it's it's not the most famous one uh, on Jeju it's a different one um, and I was like oh let's climb this like let's go up it like there's a path you can you're like it's like got a whole thing <laughs> and my wife was like dude this is like a six hour walk like what are you talking about <laughs> you're this isn't gonna right. happen and I was like. Yeah. Oh, but like, we're never going to be back here. Like, what? And I just had, I was like, one as much as I was like, all right, man, like, it's cool. Like one day, like maybe I made myself a little promise that was like when the kids were teenagers, we'd go back and we'd like hike it up together. So the moral of the story is you left your wife and kids and hiked the volcano by yourself. Yeah, I live in an apartment now. I I haven't seen them in like a year. So, you know, it's yeah, a little pluses and minuses there. One thing I'm always curious about, especially from other travel publications like Atlas, who work with freelance writers, is what's your experience with freelancers? Because writers are a special breed of crazy sometimes, and there's all kinds of people out there. Any fun horror stories? Our edit team is pretty ruthless. Like we don't really, we don't get in the door, honestly. We get some interesting folks. Like sometimes we get users um, who like 
have a very particular interest area. Like we had one user who I, I kind of really love who like only entered um, like electrical, like interesting electrical places, but they were like very, like there was like, this is the only place in the world where a DC line crosses an AC line going west to east over south to wow. north. And like, it's like on some real uh, next level detail where I was like, I don't, this isn't that exciting to me, but I do feel like it's very exciting to you. And so not everything that was submitted by that user made it through. Some of them were just too, too in the minutiae. But some of them made it through. Some of them were like, whoa, that's weird. I didn't know that. Like, that's a cool thing, you know? And and, and so we get some interesting kind of folks in that sense who, who just have a real particular area of interest. Hey, electrical tourism is on the rise. You know what's going to happen, though? That guy is going to find his life partner because of these posts, because there's going to be one person out there that is going to see that post and be like, oh, my God, this is my dream guy. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, and within Atlas, there are a lot of different little sub-communities. There's like sort of the gothier side of stuff that's like, you know, we have a lot of cemeteries and medical museums and kind of ossuaries and all of that. There's like more of the roadside, like Americana, kind of like weird, crazy, you know, giant fish sculptures and like that kind of classic roadside stuff. There's like the the more kind of like nerdy historical ruins folks like i love that i love the that electrical thing is wild to me i'm gonna start traveling just based on electrical currents and wires and oh you want to go to paris like maybe what kind of what kind of wiring we're working with here that's a real thing like that if those people are out there and they are happily traveling the world in pursuit of like the best electrical pylons (laughs) do you guys like belong to like if you had to like put yourself in a certain kind of traveling subculture like what are the things that you guys are like on the hunt for? I mean, for, for me, it it kind of depends because I mean, I'm a big snowboarder, so I do a lot of snowboard travel in the winter. But in general, like throughout the year, I would say, I mean, outdoors is always big, but I like cool cafes, really good co-working spaces. That's probably the, my nerdiest thing is I love going to co-working spaces in random places. That's a very specific. <laughs> <laughs> and, Ev- and Evan couldn't be the most. Actually, we just did a back and forth story where we did a point counterpoint on co-working spaces. He made an argument that they're a scam, and I was arguing that they're great and inspiring. You know, so it, it's kind of funny. We're very different in that way. But I think I might be on Evan's side in this particular point counterpoint. No offense, Tim. But... I, co- I come off like a massive hater, but I, I, <laughs> I stand by my perspective. How about you? Yeah, for me, probably uh, just Hawaiian pizza tourism. Anywhere that there's, I can get a good Hawaiian pizza. All right, yeah. that's that's my sub that's my sub community. Really controversial. It is. Uh, we we get we get a lot of hate. Do you know the backstory of Hawaiian pizza? Canadian. Yeah, baby. Greek Greek immigrant in Canada. I've just I've always wondered why is Canadian bacon not just called ham. <laughs> <laughs> Because how would you know that you were in Canada uh, or how would you know that you were eating a Hawaiian pizza if it was just called ham? That wouldn't work. You kind of broke my brain with that question, Tim. Yeah, I I guess it's all you got to have that specialty name, I guess. Does it come from Canada? Does Canadian? I should know this, actually. We have like a huge food vertical that should be able to know this. You know what would be good? A whole feature on foods that are named after a place that they're not actually from. That's a great idea. Like yeah. Hawaiian pizza, French fries, Belgian waffles. I don't know about Belgian, where Belgian waffles are from. Like all, all this stuff. Mm, that's a good idea. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I will say that in, in Belgium, you can buy waffles in the vending machine, you know, so they're definitely all about their waffles That's over dope. there. I love a good vending machine. Speaking of weird things, I love a vending machine that has weird, cool stuff in it. There you go. That's your subculture, vending machines. I saw a pizza vending machine recently. Not sure how that works, but it's fresh pizza. Oyster vending machine out there. There's like a salmon vending machine out there. There's like a vending machine for, there's a pecan pie vending machine where you get a whole pecan pie. I'm just picturing this giant vending machine filled with full pies. You press like B6 and the pecan just splatters to the ground and the whole inside is <laughs> an absolute mess of fruit and sucrose corn syrup. The only thing you get from that is pecan pie and it's just one whole pecan pie. Yeah. Well, food for thought. No pun intended. That's the name of the article right there. All right. Well, we'll get into our next and last segment, which is listener questions. So today's question is... If someone wanted to break into the travel media industry, whether it's writing, photography, et cetera, what is the best way to do that without getting lost in the sauce? I think by lost in the sauce, they mean like lost among all the other people that want to do the same thing. It's a good question. I mean, I'm a really big believer in the power of like owning a niche. You're unsurprisingly, AKA, you know, Atlas Obscura, but like, but like if you find a lane that you are just the true expert in, like if you find a beat that you're like, that you care about too, you know, it needs to be something that you're like interested in and dedicated to. Um, whatever that is, you know, you could you could become like the greatest geolo geology kind of traveler writer. You could be the greatest, like I'm only going to focus on, you know, uh, whatever it is, horological travel, travel to places that like amazing watch related stuff, right? There's like a community for that. Like that's a, you don't need a million fans. You need a thousand true fans. Do you know what I mean? You need 10,000 people who like care a lot about what you do and hopefully will pay you for that. A, a thousand of those people can make a business for you. You know what I mean? Like that's 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 the name of the game actually is, is not trying to reach the broadest audience at all, but cultivating a small but dedicated following to the work you do. And so the way you do that is to like go deep, is to like be really knowledgeable about something, to care about it and to find other people who are interested in it and like build a community around that. Like that's the real, that's the only real answer I have because I think everything else is just like a grind, right? Like you can pitch places, you can do all of that. And like, that's good. I mean, I think, you know, there are jobs out there that exist, uh, but they're, they're hard. They're hard to get. They're few and far between. They're like people fight for them. And in a way, I think the, the, the best way is like find your lane, find your community, set up a Patreon, go from there. You know, like that's that to me is actually the realest way to get it done at this point. If you're a waterfall specialist, good luck finding a job. If you're a if you, if you travel for astronomical clocks and only astronomical clocks, then you might have something there. Yeah, <laughs> I think and we you know, this is something we would probably normally touch on in our, our takeaways from the episode section. But I think like distilling what you said about finding a thousand true fans, it kind of goes down to thinking about your your entry into this industry as a business in itself, because that's like one of the mantras of businesses. You don't need to appeal to anyone. You need to appeal to your true fans that are going to pay you to provide them value repetitively. And travel writing is the same thing. Like you can write a million articles for a million different travel magazines and you can make a hundred bucks on each one. 
and then you'll never write for them again and you're nowhere. But if you can get in really good with one good publication that trusts you to do something, that's your in right there. Or, or even build your own newsletter. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot more optionality around and it's not going to happen overnight, but you know, whether you're, whether you're dealing with Patreon or Substack or, or any other number of channels, I mean, you're basically deciding to become a content creator, AKA a kind of influencer at that point. But like, if the work is important and meaningful to you and you enjoy it, you can make it into a you know, sustainable career if you're willing to do it for a few years, I think. It just depends on, you know, sort of what you want out of it and how long you're willing to 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 work at it. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, we'll let you go. And thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Where can people find you and your podcast? Yeah, so everything is Atlas Obscura. So you can, website is atlasobscura.com. Um, we are on all the social channels under Atlas Obscura. I'm at Dylan Thuris, but my social stuff's pretty sleepy, so I don't get too excited about it. Uh, and um, Tim, man, I'm ready for that co-working Substack you're going to drop on the world. It's going to blow your mind, man. I'm going to convert you. My goal is to convert you and Evan to full-on co-working hot desk memberships. Dude, I love it. I would. I'm into it. Tim will pay the seven thousand dollars for our private for our desk co-working <laughs> space for the first month, so we can. Uh... That sounds good. So everyone go follow, follow Dill on Instagram so he can become an influencer. Maybe he'll, we'll, we'll change his mind on influencing. <laughs> Look forward to like one picture every six months. That's going to be, that's like my publishing rate. As long as it's good. As long as it's good. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, likewise. Nice to meet you guys. All right. Well, we're here with the uh, takeaways section. That was a great talk with Dylan. Thank you, Dylan, so much for, for coming on and being open. I think... As far as takeaways, there were a lot, and a lot of them spoke to themselves pretty blatantly with this one. But the first one to me was kind of digging into the Atlas Obscura mantra of of uh, focusing in on a specific place and why it's not a tourist trap, and then letting that kind of guide your travels rather than just going with the horde or going with the flow and, and following a set itinerary. Yeah, if you're going to be a tourist trap, just own it. Just embrace it, you know? I think that's the, the big takeaway. I mean, I... I think what he said about overcrowding is really the number one negative stigma the tourist traps have because it's not that they're not cool or they're not beautiful or they're not worth seeing. Like the Blue Lagoon in Iceland is a tourist trap. It's not because it's not it's not great. It's just overcrowded and there's a ton of fucking people there, a ton of like random Americans taking pictures. It's not that it's not a, a worthwhile destination in itself. So it's really about overcrowding rather than a lack of merit itself. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the next thing, and this I think is a- actionable for people trying to work and travel is to, is to really get good at something. And I think that goes honestly, not, not just for work and not just for being a writer and trying to be a photographer or an influencer or whatever you're trying to do by working and travel. But if you're a traveler, understand what you like and what you get out of travel and let that guide where you go and what you do while you're there rather than trying to see all these big tourist trap sites all the time. So you're saying be like, find a niche, right? Yeah. Like yeah. whether you're a writer or trying to break into the industry or like just a traveler, like find that niche. Niche down in life is what I'm saying. Get niched out. Get niched out. Because if you have no uh, specific interest, but you're going to Iceland, we keep coming back to Iceland, you're going to think, okay, well, I'm going to go see all the waterfalls. I'm going to go to the golden circle. That's the same. And those are beautiful. And you should definitely go to those places, but those are the same places that 
dozens and dozens and dozens of other people are going to be at any given time because those are that's the spots that everyone knows. But if your niche is more Icelandic mythology and you're interested in their tradition of like elves and fairies and like the hidden people, um, that's a cool whole, a really cool uh, aspect of the culture in its own right that I think a lot of people don't pay as much attention to. There are tours that are designed for to, to show you Iceland's kind of hidden cultural history. And it's like showing you where the el- the quote unquote elves live in these little hillsides in the middle of nowhere and these farms. And that's really cool. And not a lot of people do that stuff. Right. And as we learned today with the discussion about the electrical uh, nerd submitting stuff on Atlas Obscura, there is something to guide you to whatever it is that you are looking for. And you can find it if you look hard enough. That electrical thing kills me. I love that. I can't even admit, like, I, I want to get one of those guys on the podcast. If, if you're listening, electric guy, hit us up. Uh, we're at noblackoutdatespod at gmail.com. We want you. It's like, oh, so dude, how was your trip to Vienna? Uh, it was great. Like they had some EK wires, like extending from North to West. And then, you know, I saw that they have some, their telephone wires that connect the city to the countryside are like volt six, five, three. And those are, you just don't see those in central Europe. Well, I think that's about it for takeaways and that'll wrap us up for today. So thanks again to Dylan from Atlas Obscura for coming on. Check out his podcast, the Atlas Obscura podcast. Also, Do us a favor for our podcast, head over to Apple, leave us a review, let us know what you thought about Dylan, and let us know what is the nerdiest aspect of your travel. We want to know what you geek out on when you're trip planning. We want to be able to talk about it. It's really good. Maybe we'll even have you on the show. We'll see you next week.